0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Moradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Byron Callen of Capital Alpha Partners with a look ahead at the week and whatever else is on his mind. But first joining us is Sam Bendett of the Center for Naval Analyses, one of the world's leading experts on the Russian military and its unmanned capabilities, who is also affiliated with the Center for a New American Security. Uh, His new paper, co-authored with his colleague Jeff Edmonds, is Russian Military Autonomy in a Ukraine Conflict, uh, a paper that is well worth reading. Sam, always a pleasure having you back on the show. Thanks so much for joining us.
1: Great to be back, Margo.
0: Uh, An absolute pleasure. And I'm sorry it's taken us a little bit longer uh, to do that. But your colleague, uh, Michael Kaufman, has been kind enough to join us a couple of times uh, over the last couple of weeks. Uh, I recall you uh, joining us uh, last year and and sort of repeatedly bringing attention to the fact that the Russians are building up forces on the Ukraine border. Who knew, uh, Sam, that you were uh, astutely... Uh, I think the first time you sent me this was literally last spring. You know, the guys came for an exercise and didn't leave yet. <laughs> uh, <laughs> You know, so uh, so here we are. Uh, before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical System sponsors our coverage of strategy. Um, so uh, Sam, as you said, what, you were way ahead uh, of, of the power curve. One of the things which I like about the report uh, is, uh, you know, you're bringing your methodical attention uh, to detail uh, to it. And I think that any paper that uh, quotes uh, General Gorosimov is, you know, right, right <laughs> at the top, uh, I think sets the right tone. Right, Uh Russian military strategist and thinker, the author of the Gromov doctrine, uh, has said that it is quote unthinkable that today's compact it, combat is quote unthinkable without drones. They are used by gunners, scouts, pilots, everyone. And right. uh, end quote. Uh, give us a sense. On, um, you know, the consensus is, uh, unfortunately, that conflict could start this week as early as Wednesday. Uh, I'm not asking you to comment on that one way or another. But how would the Russians and uh, use unmanned systems in this conflict? Because we've seen them used in Syria. We've seen them used, uh, you know, in any operational setting. Uh, uh, walk us through how the Russians are going to use unmanned systems, uh, in what form, whether on ground,
1: at sea or in the air. Right, our short paper basically brings together uh, all of our available research on this specific topic. So we zeroed in on Russian military capability with respect to their autonomy. And we also have to make a caveat here. We're not really talking autonomy in the uh, in, in a direct sense. These are mostly remote controlled platforms. Uh, Russian military likes to use um, the term autonomy, unmanned robotics sort of interchangeably. And so we're kind of naming it as the Russians call it themselves. Uh, We have witnessed Russian military use such technology in Syria with great success. We've witnessed this technology being used in eastern Ukraine. Uh, We've uh, seen it um, used in other parts of the former Soviet Union, like Kazakhstan recently. Essentially, one of the most important elements that Russian military will have in this conflict is um, the use of unmanned aerial vehicles, or UAVs for intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, and target acquisition, as well as communication. This is where uh, these uh, technologies were very successful in Syria with respect to uh, Russian militaries, using them around the clock for the first time, uh, having a combat um, situational awareness, battlefield image and battlefield data collection, basically around the clock, uh, um, a new capability for the Russian military. And these UAVs were part of the reconnaissance strike, reconnaissance fire contour. So this is a Russian concept that connects uh, airborne sensors like UAVs with targets um, via um, strikes from artillery, uh, air force, or multiple launch rocket systems and other ground-based and aerial-based systems. And so UAVs were, part, uh, were a very essential part of this reconnaissance fire, reconnaissance strike contour. Russian military praised this capability and has developed this capability. Russian military used a number of UAVs in Syria from very short range UAVs that provide a coverage for just several miles to those that can give it coverage for over 100 miles. And so it is this capability that if a conflict were to break out in Ukraine, that the Russian military will actually use. It will use UAVs as guides, as eyes and ears to scope out identify the targets, relay information back to the Russian ground and and air-based assets. We've also tracked a number of other technologies that Russian military may use that also were tried and tested in Syria. We're talking about unmanned ground vehicles for uh, demining and ordnance um, disposal. So Russian military used URAN-6 unmanned ground vehicle. It tested several others. It even tested a combat. UGV actually tested several And apparently the results of those tests were incorporated into the MLD's ongoing modernization of uh, Russian military unmanned fleet. Uh, Russian military also used um, unmanned underwater vehicles um, on a very limited scale. Again, for intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance to scope out the seabed to gain situational awareness below the waves. And these technologies may also find application in Ukraine. Russian military may use unmanned ground vehicles for demining operations. It may also use a limited number of its unmanned underwater vehicles to gain situational awareness closer to shore. Um,
0: let me, uh, uh, and I should uh, point out to our audience that as we record this, David Martin, Uh, Of uh, CBS News, one of the great reporters covering the Pentagon, uh, is reporting uh, a U.S. official says satellite images are showing Russian troops leaving assembly points and moving to attack positions. And uh, in uh, another uh, Twitter feed, we're seeing that Ukrainian President Zelensky uh, is attributed to uh, saying on Facebook, quote, we are told that February 16 will be the day of the attack. That would be Wednesday. Uh, We will make it a day of unity. The relevant decree has all already been signed uh, end quote um, what are right now you know with now with that uh, news uh, potentially under our, our belt right realizing that Wednesday could be game day uh, Sam how how to counter, Uh, these capabilities, right? Because the Russians are expected to make this a real uh, laboratory, uh, both, you know, whether uh, in land combat, in air, whether long range strike, whether an integrated air defense, whether cyber uh, space, uh, and now apparently unmanned. What are some ways to thwart some of these unmanned capabilities that the Russians uh, will deploy and whatever the Russians do tends not to be in boutique
1: quantities? Well, there are two sides to this. One is um, to employ um, air defense, early warning, electronic warfare capabilities to uh, try and identify these um, adversarial UAVs, uh, try to jam them, try to shoot them down if at all possible. Uh, On the other hand, if Russian military will use a significant number of these UAVs, it will also be difficult to actually do exactly that. It will be difficult to track them. They're relatively small. Some of them fly at a relatively high altitude. Some of them have been um, proofed against Ukrainian countermeasures. In fact, Russian military, when discussing some of the tests and evaluations of UAV specifically, talks how uh, there are different types of electronic warfare countermeasures which are built into the UAV, how it flies higher at different altitudes and uh, at different temperatures, so that it is basically strengthened against a number of conditions that would interfere with its operations. And so in some ways, Ukrainian military does possess the capability to track some of these uh, UAVs and uh, try to counter them, for example. On the other hand, again, if Russia uses them uh, in large numbers, it may actually be difficult to do so. But um, this is where um, we are essentially discussing the race for countermeasures. That the Russian military built up its own EW and uh, kinetic capability when its bases were attacked by uh, small, essentially, um, you know, uh, um, commercial off-the-shelf technologies that were built into the UAVs uh, that were operated by by non-state and anti-Assad actors. Um, It actually brought a significant capability to bear against essentially uh, a very kind of weak capacity which nonetheless raised a lot of concern for the Russians. Another concern for the Russians themselves was the fact that non-state actors, anti-Assad forces in Syria, used a lot of quadricopters and multi, multi-rotor UAVs. Some of them are commercially available. Some of them are essentially hobbyist models. Some of them were built up. But the point is uh, a lot of small um, UAVs are difficult to identify and difficult to track. And so the Russian forces themselves bore the brunt of uh, attacks by these uh, small UAVs. In fact, we actually note in the paper that Russian military is now buying and acquiring a large number of quadrucopters and multi-rotor UAVs, especially for ISR, across all services. And so Ukrainian forces then may actually find themselves in the receiving end of a multi-pronged UAV attack. Uh, long-range UAVs um, that are flying relatively high, mid-range UAVs that fly at relatively low altitudes and maybe are identifiable and traceable. And then of course, a large number of small um, quadrocopter, for example, or multi-rotor UAVs that will essentially do the same to the Ukrainian forces that the non-state forces, anti-Assad forces were doing to the Russians, essentially launching grenades and small munitions from these um, uh, and these uh, And this last category is difficult to identify also. Once it enters your operational space, um, it has to be terminated immediately. And so, for example, Russian military uh, has been teaching all of its forces to handle a small UAV threat with a number of um, capabilities like uh, shooting them down with machine guns, rifles, etc. cetera. So, again, on one hand, both sides possess the capability to harass each other's forces. On the other hand, Ukrainian forces may be on the receiving end of a relatively um, robust and capable approach that takes UAVs well into the adversarial space and starts harassing the forces or starts identifying where the Ukrainian forces are located for a larger long-range strike to take place.
0: Um, let me ask uh, well, one uh, last uh, question. Uh, you were kind enough to join us uh, during uh, the uh, Armenian, uh, Azerbaijan, Israel, Turkey uh, conflict uh, in which uh, these uh, smart munitions were deployed, right uh, of Turkish origin and largely of Israeli origin. That the Armenians sort of understood the threat, but actually did very little to prepare for it uh, and develop their own capabilities. What's the what's the condition of the much more sophisticated Ukrainian armaments industry? Um, and at this Point does it matter? Is there much the Ukrainians can do about it, given that the Russians will be very, very sophisticated, including damaging these facilities and damaging them very badly using their long-range strike assets? Right. I mean, what what's the state of their right. industry, and how likely is it any of this industry would survive sort of a, a highly kinetic um, assault? Because the Russians are very smart about anything that constitutes a threat to Russian forces?
1: Well, if the industry is targeted by a mass Russian strike, um, not much of it would survive. Assuming that uh, specific targets are identified and taken out, targets which are part of the domestic manufacturing industry, a part of the domestic defense industry. We know that Ukrainian industry, Ukrainian military are building and acquiring and testing a large number of UAVs themselves. We know they're also acquiring them uh, from international partners Uh, but the ukrainian uav force is much smaller than the russian and russian military has had years and years of practicing um, with using different types of uavs for different roles for target acquisition for intelligence surveillance reconnaissance electronic warfare is another very major role for uavs Uh, this was actually tried and tested in eastern ukraine and in Syria proper, so Russian military has uh, a better capability, has better trained forces and uh, better integrated professional forces which operate these different types of UAVs. That's not to say that Ukrainian does not uh, Ukrainian military does not. It's just that the Russian military has been at it much longer. It benefited from having um, a lot more resources and just a lot more time to practice using these systems, both in peacetime. Um, in Russian military drills and exercises and in actual combat setting in Syria. Again, Ukrainian military, Ukrainian government understands this threat. It is dedicating resources, but this is an uneven race at this point. And so if anything survives uh, a significant strike, a mass uh, scale warfare, it would be just um, uh, small scale capabilities, um, sort of small drones uh, of, of hobbyist variety, of of maybe quadrocopter, multi-rotor variety, very tactical, mission-oriented drones that are launched by small groups of soldiers just to gain uh, their immediate situational awareness. Uh, Again, this this all uh, takes place once and if this conflict actually breaks out.
0: Um, Let me ask uh, one one last question. We've got about uh, 30 seconds left. Uh, Russians uh, always love to dominate the electromagnetic uh, spectrum. Uh, The Ukrainians know this and will try to interfere with it. How survivable are some of these Russian systems if they are denied communications links in the electromagnetic spectrum, right? Because I mean, some of these are actually remote control weapons, not necessarily purely autonomous ones.
1: Yeah, most of them are actually uh, remote control. We, we make that point also um, in the paper, and uh, this is the point we've been making in our AI and Autonomy in Russia report as well, where we explored this in much greater detail. Again, I've, I've mentioned earlier that some Russian manufacturers are actually claiming that the UAVs that they're fielding are going to be EW EMS proof, meaning they're going to be um, strengthened against the adversarial countermeasures in the EMS space and in the EMS domain. So it is likely that some of these smaller systems would be able systems would actually be able to operate on their own in a pre-programmed fashion if the connection with the operator is lost. But at the same time, these are relatively cheap and simple systems. So their loss would not impact Russian military operations at the tactical and operational level that much. Uh, So that's not to say that the Russian military um, would want to lose a lot of its UAVs to countermeasures, but It is uh, recognizing that the Russian military has been drilling and practicing exactly for this type of scenario. Um,
0: Unless, of course, uh, this is all part of Putin's plan that he actually has no intention of invading, but giving every impression of invading in order to be able to put unremitting pressure, uh, not just on the West, but also on Ukraine, uh, to cause them to buckle uh, and accept uh, life on his terms, uh, which is winning really without fighting. Sam, always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Looking forward to having you on again uh, soon, and hey, maybe even a little bit later on this week. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Vago. And joining us now is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners for a look at the week ahead and anything else that's on his mind. Byron, welcome back.
2: Always a pleasure, Vago.
0: Happy Monday. Uh, In uh, consensus, Byron, as you know, in Washington and allied capitals is that Russia uh, will move on Ukraine uh, soon, as early as Wednesday. Um, first walk us through, you know, you talk to a wide array of really smart people to generate the kind of research you do. And a few of them have been very candid about exactly how horrific uh, this operation might be and how rapidly, uh, the Russians, uh, would, would move, um, ultimately, right? I mean, we've heard Mark Milley say that it would be horrific. He was the first one to use that as chairman of the joint chiefs of staff. What are some of the scenarios that we should expect maybe before the week is out?
2: Well, let me say a couple of things, Fago. First, I don't think it's a market consensus that there's going to be military military action at scale this week. I mean, you know, you had the little flurry last late on Friday uh, when markets sold off. Today, they're fairly placid. So I'm not convinced, particularly when I look at my inbox, that there's a strong consensus that there's about to be. You know the largest conventional war in Europe since since 1945. That that's about to break. Um, I absolutely think that you know if if Russia is going to undertake major military action, this is not to just slice off a little part of the Donbas. This will be for regime change in Ukraine and to really get at all the things that Putin has said he wants in terms of security. and that, you know, from a Ukrainian standpoint, I think it's just gonna be a horrible, horrible tragedy. Uh, you know, I've heard views that, um, you know, the Western political elites, Western oriented political elites in Ukraine will be rounded up um, and dealt with. Uh, we know the, the cost of, uh, you know, major conventional war amongst civilians, um, particularly in large urban areas could be, could be pretty horrific. Uh, the, the administration already talked about um, the, the potential civilian refugee flows. And when you see governments like Poland announcing actions to, uh, you know, potentially prepare for massive refugee flows, that should say something, too, about about what this all will mean. And I think the other point that is important to keep in context here is both Belarus and Ukraine have basically been buffer states up until this year, um, Ukraine more so than Belarus but you know the fact that you've had all these battalion tactical groups move into Ukraine, into Belarus you know that that's that's kind of taken away that buffer status of that place and if Russia launches um a major occupation in Ukraine that results in in um in regime change I'm very skeptical of the idea that Ukraine is going to turn out to be another Afghanistan frankly you know it might look more like the uh the Nazi-occupied countries where there are resistance movements, but but nothing on kind of the scale of uh, uh, an insurgency that we've seen in Afghanistan or even in Iraq uh, that, that Russia and the United States had had confronted. Um, but I think you know it it absolutely has to change security perceptions in Europe and and in the United States. And I I find I find it just odd right now how. People seem very complacent about about what's about to break.
0: Um, I uh, I couldn't agree with you more. Right? I mean, we should be talking a lot more about domestic preparedness. Uh, given you know, we've had FBI warnings, and the uh, Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency has given a warning that there could be offensive Russian operations against the United States. But if you look at it. We've already made it clear to Putin what it is we intend to do to him. We just, at this point, have no idea what Putin's going to do to us. Right. Uh, And and one can only assume that in the alliance that Moscow and Beijing uh, have struck, uh, that the Chinese are also going to be helping their Russian friends out uh, ultimately. And I think acting in the Olympics shows that they have will, uh, and they're not going to let something as trivial as the Olympics get in in from their standpoint. uh, Get in the way of something that's that's bigger. Uh, which which I think may be more real, you know. This isn't about Ukraine, right? Ultimately, it's about more about what Russia wants to achieve more broadly, and I think what Russia and China would like to achieve is is somehow having America pull a sanctions lever that then breaks off in Washington's hand, uh, uh, ultimately. Um, yeah,
2: and I'll, I'll just say that, Vago. I mean, I agree entirely. You know, the the security, so the cybersecurity risks I think are, are pretty profound. Um, you know, for actions, there are reactions. Uh, I'm sure Russia has thought out very carefully uh, what sanctions could be applied on their economy and and how they might deal with it. I think there's probably a, they're going to hurt, but there are actions that they can undertake too, you know, rare earth elements. They've already stopped uh, shipping ammonium nitrate, uh, which is a key ingredient in fertilizer, but also explosives. Um, You know, so I, I, You know, and some of the sanctions that are being talked about to be implied, for example, on on Russian banks are going to have pretty harsh uh, ramifications for Central and Eastern Europe, the frontline states. You know, a lot of people focus on natural gas and oil, but the sanctions on uh, on some of the major Russian banks, you know, people forget that Spare Bank has, you know, hundreds of branches in in Eastern Europe. So undertaking, you know, uh, 'll be there'll be blowback from it. And uh, you know how this all plays out in the coming days and weeks and months, I think is is really going to be interesting to see what this what this all means. From an industrial base standpoint, um, I, I think you're going to see demand uh, particularly from the frontline East European states for accelerated shipments of U.S equipment, um, you know, anything that they've ordered that they were planning for kind of 2025, 2030, you know, they're probably going to want it day after tomorrow, quite frankly. There, there's still obviously going to be lots of time that will be needed to train uh, the, the troops that are going to maintain and, and operate that equipment. But um, I've just seen very little attention or, or frankly, conversation about, okay, how, how could the U.S. defense industrial base, and for that matter, some of the European defense contractors surge um, equipment production to meet what can be a very different security environment in 2022.
0: Just like we can sanction uh, Russia, uh, Russia can also impose costs. Right. I mean, as as you were saying, uh, ammonium nitrate shipments. Right. I mean, nice messaging there. It's not just agricultural; uh, it is also an important component of munitions making. Um, what are some of the other things that we can expect uh, the Russians to do? And as an as an OPEC plus member. Um, there are some advantages, aren't there? If everybody, right? I mean, OPEC itself would be very, very happy to have Russian oil be radioactive for a period of time, right? I mean, so it's interesting to see how the whole, you know, global order adjusts uh, to this potentially.
2: Yeah, but I think also, you know, the problem from the U.S. standpoint, or really from the Biden administration standpoint, you know, the Republicans are already beating the administration over the head with with. Higher inflation, you know, anything that the U.S. did to cut Russian oil exports could only compound U.S. domestic inflationary pressure. Now, now bluntly, to me, that there may that may very well be worth the cost if you're really going to start to start in, impair Russia's uh, Russia's economy and its its capacity to frankly generate military power. Um, but you know, we're, leadership just isn't there, and that, that's not a partisan statement. Uh, I think that's a bite that's a that that affects it really applies to both parties. I just don't hear any call for, um, for hey, there may be a period here where Americans are just going to have to sacrifice a bit for a broader goal that's going to contribute to global security. And, um, I'm just curious that you know. That should be part of the the national discussion right now but it's not and and you think
0: that we are in for some surprises right so i mean this sort of we're going to punish them the likes of which they've never been punished your expectation is that that serves as zero deterrent on on the russians which is always my surmise um right i mean we project how mad or upset they would like to be and i don't think any power in history whether it's Argentina or Iraq or anybody else really tends to be dissuaded by some of this I'm, I'm interested in. Yeah.
2: I mean, I'd almost Vaga. There's their society of me. I almost think we're to just retire the word sanctions and say, this is just economic warfare. Um, you know, it really goes back to there's a wonderful book out on this really talks about the beginning of kind of the codification of economic warfare during the second world war, during the first world war, How kind of played through the 1920s and 30s. I think during the Second World War, the the British actually had a ministry uh, set up to, to, you know, how do you wage economic warfare? And in a way, we are going to go back to what we did during the Cold War. You know, you could have kind of these two separate global economic systems. But in and of itself, that's also gonna have some pretty significant inflationary pressure. If, if, you know, this is kind of a block that's aligned around China and Russia, um, you know, it it will, and and you had a couple of generations who really benefited from low, lower costs of products uh, because of globalization and, and trade, particularly with countries that had very different wage scales, environmental standards, all that. And now you're gonna try and migrate a lot of that back in the United States and Europe, well, cost of living is gonna go up, everything's gonna go up. Um, but that that can be the byproduct of all this. And, you know, access to cheap Russian energy or commodities, uh, Russian steel, aluminum, you know, Ukrainian commodities, uh, you know, it's, it's gonna change, I think. And again, the whole presumption here is that the Russians use military force at scale against Ukraine. There's always, I I never say never in this, in this business, there's always the possibility, although I think right now it's a pretty remote possibility that somehow someone blinks, uh, there's a step down and, and we, you know, we then are looking at the protracted scenarios of, um, you know, this is going to just going to be an ongoing standoff with Russia over Ukraine. And, but I, I, I'm leaning towards the, This is really the pivotal week in this uh, this whole crisis. There are some who worry that part of
0: what, um, and I fall, I think, into this category, right, that this isn't about Ukraine. This is more about what Russia wants to achieve more broadly, right? Divide the alliance, undermine Biden in an election year where he's already unpopular. Uh, and yes, achieve his goals in, in uniting what is an important, was, was the most important nation uh, in, in the Soviet uh, Confederation, right? Uh, he's asserted himself in Kazakhstan, he's asserted himself in Belarus, and he is asserting himself um, in uh, Ukraine. Uh, and that does heighten fears that this will continue because in his view, he doesn't recognize the sovereignty of the Baltic states as well as as some other states yeah. uh, in particular, or, or that's what he's suggested and actually said. Um, do you think that part of this is breaking the dollar as the world's reserve currency and, and maybe working with the Chinese in order to try to take advantage of this? It's a
2: vector. I mean, and when you start talking about cutting off you know, I hear different views about, for example, cutting Russia off from Swift, uh, which is basically a, you know, kind of global financial messenger service. Um, you know, there there are potential workarounds on that. But, you know, if you start pricing oil in Renimbis, for example, uh, instead of the dollar, yeah, there's a vector where that's going to take years to achieve, Um you know some of the the power the U.S. has in applying sanctions is you know no one wants to get caught up in in the the power of the U.S. to uh, <coughs> you know the, the dollar is is a pretty nice river <coughs> of of funding and financing to control if you start to lose control of that river because uh, there there are other other sources of global finance. Um, it, it's just going to diminish the value of of sanctions and and that tool um, in in U.S. policy. So as I said, I think it's something that will it's going to take years to achieve. But Ukraine, um, you, you know, it, it's already started in some ways. Iran, uh, the the heavy sanctions that are implied to them, some of the workarounds that they've got. China absolutely has to be looking at this. They are not going to have any uh, interest in. Um, seeing Russia brought to its knees by effective US and EU UK sanctions so i think they're they have a vested interest in making sure that what's done in Russia can't be done to them
0: you mentioned about limitations of sanctions right if if all of this fails and we do end up in a shooting match what does that mean right i mean you said we're we're transitioning into an era of economic warfare but I mean what- Yeah, well
2: I think I think what I'll basically say is you can't you can't threaten these massive sanctions and expect that it's going to deter someone from undertaking military action. And so where that's going to matter, Vago, is Iran, for example. JCPOA or no JCPOA does another round of, of massive sanctions deter Iran from behaving badly. And the other, you know the, uh, the elephant in the room is China. You know, if the U S thinks that it can pull together a massive package of sanctions, and that's going to deter China from undertaking actions that are at odds with us and regional Asian interests that ought to be rethought. And, um, then we're back in economic warfare. And frankly, we're, we're back in a hard military power. Uh,
0: again, I think history is a guide on this. Nations that want to go to war for reasons that they deem important uh, go to war, especially if they think that they can absorb pain and that which you think is painful may actually not be that which they consider to be painful. I'd love to continue this conversation, but unfortunately, time is running short. Give us uh, a quick walkthrough because it's a very big week for administration, you know, conveniently for senior administration officials to be conveying their their views uh, across across the week and beyond.
2: Yeah, I mean, the biggie obviously is going to be the Munich Security Conference. That's February 18th through 19th. uh, And they're releasing their security report on February uh, 14th. Uh, Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall is speaking at uh, the Air Force Association Mitchell Institute on the 15th. Um, Sean Skelly, who's Assistant Secretary of Defense for Readiness, is speaking at CNAS on February 15th. Uh, The First Sea Lord uh, Admiral Sir Ben Key of the Royal Navy is speaking at CSIS on the 16th. West 2022 is the 16th through the 18th. I'm sure Chris... Um, uh Cavis will be commenting on that. Um, there, there are a couple of other events that I, I have to again underscore and point out that the International Institute for Strategic Studies will be releasing their military balance 2022. They're going to hold an event to discuss that on February 15th. I think that's, uh, you know, kind of kind of a publication that should belong in everybody's library or bookcase uh, depending on um, where you keep all your fundamental military reference books
0: uh well said uh byron uh it is an extraordinary work and james hackett and the entire team uh, bastion uh, doug barry ben barry and nick childs deserve uh, tremendous credit as well as others on the team that uh, that put it together there there you go ej uh kudos kudos to you and ej harold of course representing uh i here in the united states um uh, byron thanks very much always an honor and pleasure having you on and clearly uh, we'll have more to discuss Uh, on this issue next week. Thanks so much for joining us. Have a great week and uh, looking forward to having you back on next week. Thanks a lot, Fago. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that.